If you have your Bible, turn with me to Ruth chapter 4, where you'll find the text printed in your bulletin, Ruth 4, where we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. And so today we're picking back up with our series through the book of Ruth entitled God's Redeeming Love. We're looking at how God is the main character of the story of Ruth. And just by way of recap, the book of Ruth opens with a famine in the town of Bethlehem. Remember, Bethlehem means house of bread, so there's no bread in the house of bread. And we encounter a man named Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Machlon and Kilion, and they go to the country of Moab trying to find food for their family. Seems reasonable enough, except that Moab was a pagan land, uh, and it was not the promised land of Israel where God's people should have been. While there, Elimelech dies, two sons, Machlon and Kilion, marry Moabite women, and then those two men die. So Naomi is left with her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah stays in Moab, but Ruth and Naomi go back to Bethlehem because they hear that God has visited Bethlehem and brought an end to the famine. Once they arrive, they uh, have very little means of provision, and so Ruth steps out in faith to go and glean barley. By God's grace, she ends up in the field of a man named Boaz, who is incredibly generous to her, gives her so much barley, but yet it only will provide for a few weeks. She has a greater need, and uh, so Naomi concocts a plan to send Ruth to the threshing floor to meet Boaz and basically to propose to him to ask him to be the redeemer, and uh, Boaz says yes, but there's a redeemer that's a closer relative, and Boaz says we must see if he will redeem Ruth first, and if so, great. If not, Boaz will do that. And so chapter 3 ends on a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? Is this other guy going to redeem Ruth, or is Boaz going to be the one to do it? And so that's where we pick up The story of Ruth today, chapter 4. Before I read this text, let me pray and ask for the Lord's blessing and His help. Gracious God, You've told us that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from Your mouth. Lord, would You remind us that Your word is sweeter than honey, that it is more precious than gold and silver. Speak, Lord, for Your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's word, Ruth 4, verses 1 through 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. He turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite of Naomi, of uh, Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Mahlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. And from the gate of his native place, you are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Are you familiar with the literary term foil or foil character? A foil character is one who is set up by the author in contrast to the main character, the protagonist, in order to highlight certain key attributes or qualities in that main character. This person is not often a main character in the story, but rather this person's qualities, characteristics, actions shine a spotlight, so to speak, on the main character, pointing out the difference between the two of them. So, for example, in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Romeo and Mercutio, uh, Mercutio are best friends. Mercutio is illogical and thoughtful, and that puts a spotlight on how love-struck Romeo is. I think about the series Harry Potter. There's a character named Draco Malfoy who's a foil to Harry because he uses his powerful e power for evil, whereas Harry would try to use it for good. Or even Beauty and the Beast. The Beast serves as a foil character to Gaston, pointing out the good in Gaston. There's a lot of other examples of foil characters in literature and in movies or in TV shows. I'm sure you can think of others. But here in Ruth chapter 4, we find a foil character. This unnamed redeemer serves as a foil to contrast with Boaz, showing who he is in comparison to who this guy is. His words and more deeply his attitudes and beliefs contrast those of Boaz and help us better understand what God is doing in this story. And the main way we see this is the two characters' emphasis on legacy. In this text, we find contrasting characters with contrasting legacies. They're pursuing different things. One pursuing a worldly legacy, the other pursuing a godly and heavenly legacy. I think the beliefs and actions of these two characters in this passage have much to teach you and I today. For each of these legacies, we'll notice that there's a motivation an action, and a result. So first, the worldly legacy. This is seen with this other redeemer. Remember, chapter 3 ends with Naomi telling Ruth, hey, be patient, wait, Boaz is going to settle the matter today. And so presumably, while Ruth goes back 
to Naomi's house, Boaz goes straight to the city gate. The city gate was the center of commerce, the center of all life in the town. It's where official business was conducted. It's kind of like the, the court. And what we see kind of in this passage is like a courtroom. It's like the probate court. What's going on in this story? Well, Boaz gets there, and in God's providence, the other redeemer comes by. The ESV translation that I'm using says that Boaz calls him friend. That's a little misleading. In the Hebrew, it's actually the words peloni almoni, which are nonsensical rhyming words meant to just kind of say, this guy doesn't really have a name, kind of such and such. Or we could say, Mr. So-and-so. And so that's kind of how we're going to refer to this guy, Mr. So-and-so. And we'll explore the significance of this name later. So Boaz calls Mr. So-and-so over, and then he gathers ten elders. They serve kind of as a quorum to do official business for the city. And Boaz tells the man that Naomi is selling the parcel of land that belonged to Elimelech. And this is the first we've heard of this piece of property. How does Naomi come to own this land? For women didn't own land at the time. Well, perhaps she's selling the rights to the produce of the land. Maybe because she doesn't have male heirs, she has come into ownership of the property. The text doesn't really tell us, and understanding it doesn't really matter to the furthering of our story. The point is that the land is about to change hands. And remember, that was not God's design for his people. The land was to stay in the family. And so Boaz presents this guy, this other redeemer, with the opportunity to redeem the land. And he initially says yes. Perhaps Boaz's heart just sank. We can't help but think, what? Like, no, this isn't the right. No, this is Mr. Wrong, not Mr. Right for Ruth. Like, what's happening? But then... Boaz follows up with the second part of the deal. And maybe this was his plan all along, kind of bringing this other redeemer along to draw out his true character. Look at verse 5. As then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Well, the stakes just got a lot higher. It's not just a piece of property anymore. It's also a person. Well, why is Ruth part of the package? Well, maybe Naomi wrote the contract in such a way that said, if you redeem the land, you've got to redeem my daughter-in-law as well. Maybe Boaz is just emphasizing the spirit of the law, because remember, wasn't required to redeem her. Either way, she's a part of the deal. The field and Ruth are a package deal. Well, how does Mr. So-and-so respond? Verse 6, he says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Wow. Mr. So-and-so's true colors come out. Did you catch what he said about his own inheritance? Clearly, he's focused on a worldly legacy. And let's examine this a tad closer. Let's think about his motivation for a minute. What is driving his attitudes and his actions in this text well on the surface it's finances he's clearly a shrewd businessman looking for a good deal and this seems like a great deal 
He would spend a little bit of money to get this piece of land, but he would get his money back tenfold or twentyfold easily for the produce of the land. But then Boaz mentions Ruth, and he backs up faster than one of us seeing a coiled snake in our yard. Wants nothing to do with it. At first glance, this seemed like a great business deal, but now it's an investment nightmare. And Mr. So-and-so runs from the deal. Well, that's a surface level. But if we dig deeper, we find that there's a, a, a more significant motivation going on. And it's really it's his, his selfishness. This man had a covenant responsibility to redeem people in his family, to care for those in need. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it. What is he concerned about? His inheritance. If he buys the land and marries Ruth and he has a child, a son with Ruth, then that son would get the piece of land and not him or his other children if he has any. Moreover, he would have to take some of the inheritance to his other hypothetical children and give it to this child. And if he doesn't have any children and this child he has hypothetically with Ruth is his only child, then now his name would go extinct, like the problem for Machlon, as we've seen in this story. And so he counts the cost, and he says it's not worth it. It's not practical. It's too risky. It's not comfortable. Perhaps he's concerned with not only the finances, but also the social stigma of marrying someone from Moab. But at the heart of it, his focus is on himself and his earthly legacy, and it leads him to make a terrible decision. In Genesis chapter 13, we find out that Abram, later called Abraham, and his nephew Lot have grown so much and they're so wealthy that the two of them need to split up. And Abram says, Lot, you pick which way you want to go. If you go this way, I'll go that way. If you go that way, I'll go this way. Wherever you choose. And so in Genesis 13, 10, it says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot chose the best-looking land without considering the spiritual ramifications, and it led him to dwell in a place of rampant wickedness. It almost cost him his life, and it does cost the life of his wife. All because he cared more about himself than material possessions. I think about the rich young ruler in Mark 10. He asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And he goes through them and he says, well, all of those I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus says, well, one thing you lack. Go, sell everything you have. Give to the poor. Come follow me. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. It says that the man went away sad because he had much wealth. Once again, a man motivated by an earthly legacy and the possessions of the world. You know, friends, it's easy for us to rebuke Mr. So-and-so here in Ruth 4 or Lot or the rich young ruler. But so often we're the same way. We can be motivated by our earthly legacy. How much money can I earn so that I can leave a good inheritance to my children or grandchildren? How many good deeds can I do in the community so that my name can be remembered? Maybe I can get my name on a building here in town. Or how much service can I do to the church so that I am remembered in this place. 
If we aren't careful, our motivation can be selfish gain and worldly legacy. That was the case for Mr. So-and-so, and that was his motivation, and motivation drives action. So what's his action? Well, really, it's inaction. He's presented with the opportunity to redeem the land, to redeem Ruth, and he says, no, I'm not going to do it. Can't bring himself to help his family in need because it might negatively impact his earthly legacy. And the depths of this inaction are really worse than we might first imagine. What Mr. So-and-so is in effect doing and saying is, I can't help my family because it might cause me financial harm. Commentator Ian Duguid puts it this way, he was interested in ministry to the poor only if there was a payoff for himself and his family. Costly ministry without any personal payoff? Forget it. Ouch. But before we come down too hard on this guy, you know, you and I can do the very same thing. We often think, well, what will I get out of it before we consider volunteering in the nursery or helping with vacation Bible school or agreeing to teach Sunday school? Youth, young people, maybe for you, the reason you do service is only because you need service hours for Beta Club or some other civic organization at school. You see, we can be so focused on building our resume that we won't help others unless it fits our needs, unless we get some kind of credit. I don't want to do the jobs that nobody sees. I want the credit. I want to do something that people recognize, we might think. Mr. So-and-so didn't want to take a risk in serving God. He wanted to be comfortable. He wanted to serve his own interests. Is that you? You know, our society today idolizes comfort and security. We don't want to take risks. We want to stay comfortable. We want to protect our children or our grandchildren. But God never calls us to be secure. He calls us to trust him. To be bold, to step out in faith, to serve others for his glory. Well, what's the result? The result is that Mr. So-and-so is forgotten. Boaz is intentional in calling him this name, Peloni Almoni. This is a close relative. Surely he knows this guy's name. It's not like, oh, hey, bud, like, oh, I forgot your name, so I'm just going to call you Mr. or hey there, buddy, buckaroo. No, he knows this guy's name. It's intentional. And the author is intentionally leaving out the name as well, stating your failure to act is going to cost you your name. His concern for an earthly legacy causes him to go down in the Bible not by his given name, but as a no name. Names matter. And losing your name, so to speak, is a grave loss. It was a sign of one of the ultimate signs of God's curse. But more than that, Mr. So-and-so here in Ruth 4 loses out on being a part of an important family line. As we'll see next week, the genealogy leads us to David and then ultimately to Jesus. So the result of a focus on an earthly legacy costs Mr. So-and-so a place in God's plan and redemptive history. And in some ways, the same can be true for us if we're not careful. Focus on an earthly legacy might lead us to missing out on a heavenly reward. In other words, we could focus so much on the things of this world that it could cost us our soul and lead to eternal damnation. The stakes are high. It's not bad to care about a little bit of 
your earthly legacy, but there's something so much greater, a heavenly legacy, and that leads us to Boaz. Clearly, his focus was not on an earthly legacy. He wasn't bothered by the potential financial impact of redeeming the land and redeeming Ruth. Why? Well, let's follow the same pattern as with Mr. So-and-so. What was Boaz's motivation? It clearly wasn't selfish gain like this other guy. No, he was focused on more important things. He was motivated on the one hand by a desire to care for his family members in need. But from where did that desire come? It came from his love for God and for his law. You see, Boaz was deeply concerned about God's law and caring for those in need. Some could argue that, that, Boaz, you're just being legalistic. You know, the law doesn't actually require you to do this. Like, why bother? The financial potential loss is not worth it. Think about what this could do to your reputation. You're marrying a Moabite? Ooh, don't do that. But that is not how he approaches things. Instead, he shows deep devotion to the law of God and the God who gave it. In other words, his desire was to bring glory to God through faithfulness to the spirit of the law, going above and beyond even what the law required. Teenagers, it might be tempting to think that obedience to God's way is just too much. It's too costly. And it might cost you some things. It might cost you your friends at times. It might cost you invitation to parties. But devotion to God and to his commands is worth it. God's laws aren't restrictive. No, they're liberating. They allow us to live as God intended and find the greatest amount of joy in life. Are you motivated by love for God and for His commands? You know, if if all of us are honest, at times our motivation is not what it should be. And we need to repent of that. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to live differently. Remember, our obedience does not earn God's favor or blessing. Rather, it's done in response to what God has done for us. And George read the Ten Commandments at the beginning. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God already saved and then he calls them to obey. Same is true for us. What has God done for us? He sent his son Jesus to die in our place and to rise again so we can have life now and forever. That is to say the good news of the gospel is our motivation to live for God and to seek a heavenly legacy. Boaz is motivated by love for God and for his law, and this fuels his action. What does he do? Well, he redeems Ruth and the field. And this is a big deal. Remember, he's not required to do this, but he's following the spirit of the law, saying, I'm going above and beyond to care for my family because I love God. In verse 7, we read that there's a custom at that time of taking off a sandal to confirm a transaction. We're like, what? That's kind of weird. Like, I don't really like feet or shoes. Like, I'm glad we don't do that today. What's going on here? Well, it seems that this is connected back to Joshua 1.3, where God says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. In other words, the sandal was a symbol of ownership of the land. And giving the sandal is like kind of give, transferring the deed to the property. Signing on the dotted line. It's going from my possession to your possession. 
And then Boaz asked the men and other people there to be witnesses, and they said, we are witnesses. You see, Boaz is focused on the heavenly legacy, and his actions have followed suit. Brothers and sisters, we too are called to pursue a godly legacy. This means storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. How do we do this? Well, like Boaz, we can care for those in need. This past week, Elijah, our youth director, and I had the chance to go and hear folks from the ministry World Relief share about their ministry to refugees. And it was fascinating to hear how God has been at work in that ministry. And they're looking to potentially expand from the Greenville-Spartanburg area to the Rock Hill area. So perhaps God is calling us to be a part of that, to care for refugees and immigrants. After all, Ruth was an immigrant. She needed care. It's just one example of many of how we can meet needs in our world. Or perhaps for you, pursuing a godly legacy means including the church in your estate planning. Or including Bon Clarkin or Erskine or some other ministry. Or it's not just about what you leave behind on earth, but a heavenly legacy. Motivated by the love of God, we too can make a difference in our world. We can take the good news of Jesus to our friends, neighbors, co-workers, and family members. We can share the gospel with those who live right around us. Motivated by a love for God and his word, Boaz takes action to care for those in need. And what's the result? Well, unlike Mr. So-and-so, he ends up being a key figure in God's story of redemption. Boaz is a name that we remember. Our passage ends with the elders and other people there praying for God to bless Ruth and Boaz and their house. And as we'll see next week, God fulfills those prayers. But it's not just about that. It's greater. You see, there's a heavenly component to what Boaz is doing. He's storing up treasure in heaven. He is seeking to obey God, to love him. It's not focused on the potential financial loss of this purchase. Pastor Randy Alcorn tells a story of one time how he and his family went to Cairo, Egypt. He says that they met some missionary friends who took them on a kind of a trip around town. And they first drove down an alley to an overgrown graveyard for American missionaries. Pointed out a sun-scorched tombstone that read, William Borden. 1887 to 1913. Borden, a Yale graduate and heir to great wealth, rejected a life of ease in order to bring the gospel to Muslims. He gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions, and after only four months of zealous ministry in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. The epitaph on his grave read, Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Randy Alcorn goes on to say, after that they went to the Egyptian museum and saw the grave and the exhibit of King Tut. He said, King Tut, you know, died at age 17 and his grave is, is fascinating. He was buried with solid gold chariots and thousands of golden artifacts. His gold coffin was found buried within gold tombs, within gold tombs. Remember, the ancient Egyptians believed in an afterlife, and they thought those possessions could go with you to help you enjoy the afterlife. 
But what happened to all of those gold relics? They stayed there for more than 3,000 years until the tomb was discovered by Howard Carter in 1922. King Tut had all the earthly glory, but he has no eternal or heavenly legacy. William Borden had very little earthly legacy, but his heavenly one is infinitely greater. That reminds us that what we do, storing up treasures in heaven, is so much greater than what we have on earth. And as Luke reminded us from last week from 1 Peter 1.4, our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. So as we close, what legacy will you leave? Will it be an earthly one that will ultimately pass away? Or will it be an eternal one, a heavenly one? Maybe you think, well, I haven't done a whole lot, and maybe it's too late for me. It's not. Didn't you know the name of the inventor of dynamite? The name might sound familiar once you hear it. Alfred Nobel. In 1867, 1867 Alfred Nobel invented a new high explosive, which he named dynamite. He believed that this invention would make war so horrible that it would never happen again because it would become so awful, so terrible, that no one in their right mind would be willing to inflict that kind of terror on somebody else. Instead of ending wars, dynamite made them more devastating and more wide-ranging than it had ever been before. And Nobel was horrified. He had no idea what to do. He had made a fortune off of the sale of dynamite. And then something interesting happened. One morning, around the turn of the century, he woke up to read his own obituary. It read, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before. He died a very wealthy man. The newspaper had made a mistake. It was his older brother that had died and not him. Yet you can imagine that reading, quote, your own obituary would have an impact on your life. And it did for Alfred Nobel. He realized he didn't want to be known primarily as the person who invented such a destructive weapon. So what did he do? Well, he founded the Nobel Peace Prize, an award for scientists and writers who foster peace. Nobel said every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. What had happened? Well, he was given that chance to make a change. He made a big turn. And when he did pass away, he wasn't known just for creating dynamite, but for the Nobel Peace Prize. Friends, there's always a chance for us to change this side of eternity. Perhaps the change for you is a repentance of your sin and coming to Christ for the first time. Maybe it's a a greater commitment to storing up treasure in heaven. Wherever you are, remember, the legacy that we leave behind ultimately should be about God and His glory, not about us. May that lead us to live lives for God until the Lord calls us home, until Christ returns.